Hey, Ryan, how are you doing today? Hey, John, good to hear from you. Good to talk to you today. Yeah, same here. Ryan Wallerstein is the publisher of The Illicit Edge. And Ryan and I worked together uh, a number of years ago when he was at the Treasury Department and I was the Bankers Association. And we've reconnected recently. And what I want to do today, Ryan, is talk a bit about your career journey and then spend a good deal of time on uh, what I find to be a tremendous newsletter that you've created, The Illicit Edge, uh, the value proposition for the AML CTF sanctions community can't be overstated. So I want to get to that. But um, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are today. Obviously, you've taken a couple of different routes. You've you've been in, in media, but obviously you also, when I met you, you were at the Treasury Department um, a couple of years after 9-11. So t- tell us a bit about that and uh, and what drove you to the space that obviously many of us consider an important career? Thanks, John. Absolutely. And it's a fair question. My career has been a circuitous one, to say the least. Um, but sort of a summary would be, uh, I got out of college in 1998, which, as you'll remember, was sort of, some might say, the zenith of American power. Uh, end of the Clinton administration, economy was amazing jobs easy to come by. Um, It was the dot-com boom, not the bust yet. And the world was great. And I had been raised by, you know, relatively strict conservative parents who said, you got to work hard. It's tough to get a job. You got to keep a job, nose to the grindstone. And my friends and I got out of college and it was, people were throwing jobs at us. And (laughs) it, it was really an interesting time. And I ended up um, going into advertising. And, and I was re- really sort of fascinated by, at that point, magazines, which are harder to come by, by nowadays. But I got into advertising sales at a magazine called Esquire. And in my early sure. 20s, uh, my job was basically to go to advertising agencies, go to events, travel the country, um, meet people from the fashion world, from the, the spirits world, automotive, financial, and I had a corporate card at 25, and my job was to take people out to fine dining and have a great time. And I was just loving it. I loved media. I loved um, the advertising world. And then, as of course you'll remember, 9-11 happened. I was in New York at the time. And I think, like so many other people, it just it was, um, it was, it was a change in how you viewed the world. Right. And I went from sort of being this happy-go-lucky a young 20-something to realizing that uh, something had to be done and people in my generation had an obligation to do something. And I felt um, sort of a surge of patriotism and a real yen to serve and kind of on a dime, I, I dropped my, my, um, my young advertising career, went to Columbia University to get a master's in international security policy uh, beginning in 2002 Um, just to sort of figure out what I might be able to do to serve. And that started sort of a a series of serendipitous events that led me in 2004 to the Treasury Department um, to work in a new office that literally I I think had six people at the time called the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. And um, that office and that group of people, uh, that, that leadership, and I consider many of those those folks to be mentors, that office changed the world in terms of creating at that time a new AML-CFT regime that um, was more effective, I think, at, 
at um, influencing our enemies more than the Defense Department in some ways. It was a really heady time. And at that time when I was at Treasury, I got the opportunity and I think, you know, really the pleasure to work with some of the leaders that create that, to have, that really helped to create that regime, like Juan Zarate, Chip Ponce, um, Danny Glazer, Bob Werner, Adam Zubin, uh, folks that we all right. know about, Stuart mm -hmm. Levy, who helped to create what we have now. So I did that for, for a, a few years, ended up returning back to media when I came back to New York to start a family. Um, and sort of, I didn't leave those relationships behind from Treasury. I just started doing other stuff. Um, and in 2014, I reconnected with, with Juan Zarate and Chip Ponce when I was on an unrelated business trip to DC. And they were starting a company called the Financial Integrity Network that was going to change the way that sanctions and money laundering training was, was given in global banks and in jurisdictions worldwide. It was going to do risk assessments. And I'm not a technical expert. My role was really to help them build the company from an operations perspective. So right. whether it was you know IT and cybersecurity to human resources and media and marketing, I helped them build the company while they went out to, to do a lot of the, the service for clients and building the client relationships. So, um, so, on, yeah. so on that, before you go on, uh, a couple things. Uh, jump out at me 2004 uh when you started there that was also uh, the time of riggs bank the issue with embassy banking the senate permanent investigations uh committees did a lot of work in that space so obviously the the group that you were part of uh were were both instrumental and partnered with uh, law enforcement bank agencies and all of that what was your since and you and you said you're not an expert, but you've definitely been in this space for a long time. So you, your your um, views are are more than relevant. They're important. What was your take? You know, coming from sort of the high fly in '90s to you know 2004 till when when you moved on at Treasuries, what the private sector, specifically the financial sector, what they were doing right, and perhaps what they were doing that was problematic. What was what was the sense? Now, obviously, uh, I'm I won't prejudice your answer, but obviously, there was a lot of bankers that were very active and proactive in compliance, detection, investigations. But we also had Riggs Bank. We had a number of mm -hmm. other institutions and MSBs that were problematic. What was the general theory of that office then? I want your take on that because I, I have my own views on it, but I'm curious. And what was your view then about the private sector and the role that they played in what we call now AML, CTF, sanctions, uh, prevention, detection? Yes. So I would say that it was an interesting time in that the government and the private sector were kind of getting to know each other in a new way. And it frustrated a lot of people, it challenged a lot of people, it inspired a lot of people during that time. But there were challenges that you know well, where I think members of the private sector at banks were looking to the government and saying, tell us what to do right. and we will do it. Tell us the rules, we will follow the rules. And the response at that time, and, and I think it was, it was a new experience getting this message from the government was, it's your job to follow the rules. It's not our job to tell you what to do and how to accomplish that goal. Here are the standards 
and you have got to run your organization in a way that's compliant with the regulations that are going to help us protect the country from terrorism. So there was a sort of a natural tension and folks on both sides with really strong views. So I did see that and was fascinated by it. You know, um, just on that, and we could, we could go off on a very many tangents on that. One of the things that we're dealing with even today, uh, in 2023, is the way that, and I'm not asking you to drill down on this, but the way that our AML infrastructure has been created, it has a combination of here, here are the requirements, follow these requirements, uh, but there's also a crying need that some has been filled for law enforcement, Treasury, NSA, State Department to say, here's the things that we believe that you, the private sector, besides your compliance requirements, can assist us with. And that'll lead mm-hmm. me to the later conversation we'll have about the illicit edge because of the priority. So I will say that, yeah, there was tension at the time, but I think it was more, and, and, and that's why I'm curious about your view. So you saw it, you weren't on the sidelines, you were in the meeting, so you, you mm-hmm. heard the conversations, but but you, uh, the way you characterize it, I, I would, not even a pushback, I would say that it was, it was more, we we're trying, we, meaning the private sector, we're trying to navigate all these requirements. Some are sort of check the box things. Mm-hmm. Some are, uh, you know, sort of pure record keeping reporting. But we want to, at the end of the day, we want to make sure whatever we do, required or not, gets in the hands of law enforcement so they can act quickly. So I think in some cases, and I know I've had this conversation with Chip, uh, a little bit with Danny and even Sarah when they were there saying, mm-hmm. hey, folks, you got you got to give us something. And to your point about where it's not our job, now you, you weren't embracing that, but the comment that it wouldn't be their job, that was the problem with OFAC, frankly, mm-hmm. because for years we would try to say to OFAC, hey, look, we get that you have to block things or reject them of all that, but can you give us some idea of what compliance infrastructure we need? And they were like, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You violate this. You violate the law. They've changed the past couple of years. There's been, as you know, because you covered this, the, uh, mm-hmm. there's there's now OFAC compliance, uh, I won't say directions, but guidance that didn't exist before. So I think everybody sort of come up with, hey, let's let's be more partners versus you do your thing. We'll do our thing. So I think you're you're absolutely right that after 9-11. Let's figure out together. And it was a lot of growing pains. And I think a lot of that has worked its way. So that that is interesting that that's what you remember, because I do remember being in a lot of those meetings saying, hey, we got some smart people here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them are are former law enforcement. So we know what we're doing. But can can you give us some idea what you want? And so I think it wasn't uh, a rejection of that concept. It was more, well, we don't want to say do X because then you'll forget Y and Z sort of thing. So anyway, uh, that's really interesting. So when you went back to um, uh, Financial Integrity Network, and they were obviously later acquired, tell us where your career path from leaving there to where you are today. What have you done in the interim? Because it was just a couple of years ago, the, the purchase is as far as I can remember, right? Sure. And actually, if you don't mind, I'll return back to the, your original question about the, the dialogue between the oh, please, public and private don't. sector yep, before, before getting yep. to your other question. Yep. But the what I have ringing in my ears from that era, which still rings in my ears, is the risk-based approach, right? It, the message was, 
um, yes, we've got to figure this out together. And, and in a lot of ways, I think it was driven by resources at the time. And to your point, it's changed. But basically saying, here are the risks. Please manage them. We can't tell you exactly what to do and when to do it because we don't necessarily have the resources to kind of follow that and enforce it in the way that it needs to be done. Um, and I think you, you've seen that type of a response for better or worse coming from the government in, right. in, the, in the era of cyber and the era of social media as well. But I just wanted to note that I remember no, that's that fair. as well. Yep. Fair, fair point. Fair point. So uh, walk us through uh, when Finn was acquired and then what, you've, what you did after that till you started this, uh, this great publication that I want to spend a lot of time on. Absolutely. So um, at Finn, I, I got to have some really amazing experiences building a business really from scratch with people that I had great respect for and still do. Um, during that experience, over the years at Finn, I had an opportunity to travel to a variety of, of parts of the world as Finn's growing staff was giving training, compliance training to major banks as well as jurisdictions. So whether we were working with BNP Paribas or um, Bank of Tokyo and, and others, we got to go into um, regions and in cities where hundreds of compliance officers would be in a room there to learn the latest sanctions and, and financial crime related training. And when I think of corporate training, it's like, uh, corporate training, you know? So there, I anticipated in some cases that the people who would be in those rooms would kind of be rolling their eyes and you know, right. checking their watch. And what really struck me, and it was really my first time having direct contact for, for weeks at a time, in some cases with, with these compliance officers, I was struck by the passion that they had. And this might sound kind of corny, but it's true. Um, people who do this work, as you know, I would say in most cases, they, they're doing it because they care. They're doing it because they believe in the mission for their organization. But there's also this real sense that they're doing something to protect all of us. And that really, it really blew me away. And I took it to heart. And during some of those training, there was this thirst for information, thirst for knowledge, thirst for finding out the latest. And it sort of planted a seed in my mind that ended up becoming Illicit Edge, which was how can, how can we create something where people can go anytime in this space to get the latest information? So I do remember that time where I, you know, my, my respect for people in this, in this um, industry really grew. All right. So uh, you left there and what have you been, um, what got you to create the illicit edge? Obviously thematically, you just said why, because the thirst for information, but uh, tell us how you got this started and mm -hmm. sort of what goes into your thought process in terms of what, you're providing because you have a newsletter, you have a website, you have a research hub, a reading list. There's all sorts of great information. And I told you offline, I teach a class in uh, money learning terrorism, and I'm going to have my students this summer subscribe to this because what I've always tried to do is give them the most up to date information on the on the uh, topics that we're covering. And frankly, this is this is right this is right there. So, um, what made you do this and then I don't give away state secrets. How do you go about uh, crafting uh, the links, the topics, uh, not from an operational standpoint, but what do you, what do you look for? What, what do you think is important 
to have because you have a lot of coverage of a lot of issues every day. Mm -hmm. Got it. No, thank you for that, that question. I would say that the, the response is somewhat complicated and it hasn't been linear. I think at the beginning of last year, I decided, let me start a website that's kind of like a mixture of the Drudge Report, which is a news curation and aggregation platform that I'm sure you're aware of. It's been around for 20 years and, and has some of the highest traffic, internet traffic that exists out there for news organizations at Rivals, New York Times and CNN. And I was always fascinated by that. So it's a combination of Drudge Report as well as Real Clear Politics, which is a more news centric news curation platform that also goes way back. And, and it's also partially a combination of those and more modern versions of, of that model, such as the Morning Brew or the Hustle, where right. the, these organizations started as news aggregators, then curators. And as they grew, they became media companies and they became original content producers, they became event companies. And because of my background in media, and having run marketing for certain organizations, it just, it, it, it interested me. And I thought, you know, that seed that was planted years ago about providing a place for people in our industry to get this information would be cool. I knew how to build it from a technical standpoint. And I figured, let me just see what happens. So I started it as a lark and then as a hobby. And it quickly became a passion because my newsletter subscriber list started to grow really quickly and organically, which was pretty much, you know, very shocking to see when you build something from scratch. So that was a lot of fun. And I think it was what encouraged me to continue doing it was the feedback, the organic feedback I was getting from people in the industry from, from all areas of it. So I've gotten um, totally unsolicited feedback from chief compliance officers at major banks, representatives from the Intel community, people at the highest levels of, of treasury uh, who have said, you're doing a great service here. Thank you, keep doing this. I just got a, um, a, an email from a CEO at a tech company today saying, keep up the good work. I read this every day. So that was very gratifying. And I figured I'm doing something that's helping. Let me keep doing it. And it, it's sort of been fun. And um, that has led me sort of to take it from one level to the next. Um, I, I rem there's sort of this one one story that sticks out in my mind is I, I got on a Zoom call at, at this person's request, who's a compliance um, professional at the post office, the U.S. post office. Uh -huh, right. And, and she, she said to me, we use your website as a negative news source, and we have spotted some bad guys based on the articles you've posted. And I was like, that is awesome. So that type of feedback has been really, really um, helpful. Uh, so I've, I basically created what I believe is a central home for people in our space in financial crimes compliance, whether they're with a big bank, a regional bank, a jurisdiction, a crypto firm, a fintech firm, uh, to come and get the latest information, whether it's one of our news feeds or regulatory feeds to see what just happened with OFAC or what happened at FinCEN yesterday. It's all there. But also to get sort of a, a textured uh, view into the news of the day that affects the financial crimes compliance professional. And when I say that, I think it's important to recognize, and I'd love your take on this as well, is that people working in this, in this field 20 years ago were really seized by terrorist financing, right. money laundering, 
right? And that was the focus. And what I learned over the years is that, yes, those things are important, but what these professionals are doing is managing risk. And that risk could come from a cartel in Mexico. It could come from the latest fraud market. It could come from a terrorist. It could come from somebody engaged in high-level corruption. And really the role of the compliance officer in some cases is to know about a lot of those things in order to do his or her job. Yeah, I think that's right. And they also what this also does, it gives a snapshot each day of the plethora of uh, items, both domestically, because you cover all the all the agencies in the U.S., uh, great links to all of that. And then globally from, you know, FATF to Europol to Wolfsburg to, you know, what what have you. And I think that becomes important. Um, this is as I look through the breakdown of uh, just today's newsletter, the characterizations of different buckets of sanctions, AML, CFT, mm. cyber, corruption, trafficking. But to your point, it's more than terrorist financing today. It's the breadth of fraud, whether it's PPP loan fraud, whether it's uh, elder abuse, whether it's still Ponzi schemes, even in 2023, you know. So I think that also falls under the a broad-based um, um, umbrella. The corruption area is pretty important, whether it's political corruption, business corruption, you, you cover those things as well. And it's definitely a negative news source. There's no question. This is not a critique. It's just a question. From, from what I've seen um, on a regular basis since I've signed up for this, there's not an there's not an analysis by you. It's a straightforward. Here's the stuff, folks, and not hey, figure it out. But so, which is a value proposition. But mm -hmm. am I am I incorrect in that? That your mission when you put this together was not so much what does Ryan think about these things, but these are all topics that are relevant to the community, and I'm going to get those out there so that you have that all at your fingertips. I think that's exactly right. I intentionally did not make this about me. Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's certainly, it comes through as my voice in some cases because I, I am curating the news in a certain way based on sure. what I view as what could be both really important but also fun to the readers during that each day. So I, I take risks, I take chances, I get a feel for what works and what doesn't. Um, and it's it's a it's a daily newsletter. It's usually six days a week. I take Saturday off usually just to kind of collect myself. But right. um, I spend a lot of time throughout the day reading sources and use my instinct, for better or worse, based on my time in this field over the past twenty years, to kind of suss out here's what people might not know about that could affect what they're doing today. Mm -hmm. At the same time, being provocative, right? Um, I like to have a story about how bad Trump is on one day. And then I like to have a story about how bad Biden is on the next day, because I, I want it to be provocative, but also clear that the purpose of the newsletter is not to be political. It's to show that um, the challenges we face come from all sides, um, in a variety of industries and, and take different shapes and forms. So on, on a day like this, I have a really interesting piece about Clarence Thomas potentially right. being investigated because of a, of a Republican donor that um, allegedly has been giving him money for a, lo a long time. And I also have stories about recent drug cartel activity with Chinese shadow banks. So it sort of runs the gamut right. based on what I feel is going to resonate each day, 
but that also is, is as comprehensive as something like this can be in a limited email in terms of showing what's happening regionally, right? So I don't want it just to be, here are the top stories, but also this happened in the Middle East regarding terrorism, and it's not necessarily top of mind, but it's there. Keep it in right. mind, right? Yeah, you know, you have uh, the, the other breakdowns that I find really valuable. You have a section you call the compliance toolbox, and it's all sorts of indexes, everything from uh, Transparency International, which our audience is, is very well aware of, to the World Justice Project, OCCRP, which I've done some interviews with some of the uh, reporters there as well. So it's, a, it's an area to go to for additional sort of what I would call statistical and survey-related information. So you have that. You break it down. There's some specific countries highlighted, uh, mm. Syria, of course, European Union, Pakistan, other places. Um, crypto. Let's talk a little bit about crypto. Um, what's your... What's your take about that industry's interest in not what you're doing, but in terms of needing that information so that they can be, my words, not yours, better compliant? Uh, is it difficult to, to navigate those stories? I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's not completely new, but it's a relatively new, a new space. There's been a lot, everything from Binance to, you know, uh, uh, FT, not FTX, the... the um, uh, I forget the guy's name. The guy, the guy did the Ponzi yeah. scheme, basically. So, what's which your, one? What's your, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what's your, what's your take on crypto high level? Not do you like it or don't you like it, but in terms of covering that space, is it hard to cover, or there's just a, there's a lot there, and you don't find that as challenging as I might to try to find out what would be relevant to an AML officer to know about crypto besides the basic stuff you're already seeing in the main uh, papers? It's a lot of fun because for better or worse, there's no shortage of content nowadays, okay. right? Yep. And so seeing what happens with, um, you know, whether the, the CEO of Binance, where is he? What is he doing? Is he going to be prosecuted when and for what? And who's going to take him in to protect him, right? So you, you're getting messages about a very complicated topic from different sides that in my mind are very interesting. So I try to present stories on things like finance in, in a way that's going to pique people's interest, recognizing that this is a new space. We don't really know yet what the government's going to do or which government's going to do what. And I don't know that they do either as we figure this stuff out. And when I do that, I have in my mind the fact that I know that I have subscribers from Binance who, who get the newsletter, right? So there's insight into, you know, whether it's people at Coinbase or, 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 or Binance or some of these other fintech, fintech firms who are getting the newsletter every day. Um, so I want to pique their interest. I want to pique the interest of the general risk professional to think about what's really a burgeoning field. That's great. So let me get you out of here on this. Uh, Illicit Edge is a, a newsletter. Tell us how you how you get that? Tell us a bit about the website uh, and anything else you you, you want to make sure our, our listeners hear about because I can tell you again from only uh, seeing this for the past month and a month and a half whenever we first connected it's a it's a tremendous source a lot of the this week in AML issues that Elliot and I talk about on Fridays we, we first learned uh, from your publication so uh, it's definitely a value add of course so uh, how can people uh, get involved with this, get it. Uh, what else do you want to mention? Thanks, John. I'm really grateful for you saying that and for taking the time. It's something I'm really passionate about. 
getting feedback like that and from others is gratifying because I think it is making a difference in terms of informing people in our space who focus on financial crime. But in short, it's illicitedge.com. It's a free daily newsletter with um, an updated website every day as well. So illicitedge.com, visit anytime, get the latest. And daily, subscribe for the email newsletter. It doesn't cost you a dime. And you can stay on top of everything from a you know, somewhat comprehensive point of view that's going to affect your work as a compliance officer each day. Well, Ryan Wallerstein, thank you so much for sharing uh, both this, but your insight, um, your career your career journey, obviously fascinating. And uh, obviously, you and I have talked offline about a lot of these issues as well, but really appreciate what you're doing. And I could say safely on behalf of our, our community, you've been more than a value add for us. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time today and we'll, we'll catch up with you in the future. My pleasure. Thank you so much, John. 